Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Right, Alistair here. And the bulk of what you're going to hear from me and Rory was recorded at 9.30 UK time on Tuesday. And then... I don't know what Rory did for the rest of the day, but I went up on my bike riding up Mont Ventoux when my phone started to go a bit bonkers with lots of breaking news alerts and then people from the media phoning me. So I came back and it was because of the fines for Johnson and Sunak by um, the police for breaches of the law with regard to COVID lockdown and so-called Partygate. Now, I know what I think and I've been fulminating ever since, but Rory, what do you think? I think it's 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 disgusting. It's awful. And um, one one of the problems is that because Johnson piles distraction on distraction, scandal on distraction, it's it's a deliberate technique of his. I don't know if it's a technique that that was around in your day, but his technique is that if you throw enough chaff in the air, people forget about the previous scandals. I felt this even when I was trying to talk to people about how awful what was happening during COVID in Number Ten was that people had already forgotten the other scandals. They'd forgotten the scandals around Owen Patterson and lobbying. They'd forgotten scandals around his wallpaper. They'd forgotten parochial of Parliament. Just one thing builds on another. But the simple central fact is he introduced laws for the rest of the country, which was an incredibly serious thing to do that had a huge impact on people's lives. And he was in endless COBRA meetings looking at the very details of those laws discussing them in real detail with people as he needed to, because this was basically the biggest issue in British politics for a year. And then he creates a culture in Downing Street which deliberately breaks those laws, as the Metropolitan Police has now confirmed. And that tells us almost everything you need to know about this man, which is that he simply is incapable of acting with any kind of responsibility or seriousness. I think it's inconceivable for example, that Theresa May would ever have allowed any of that stuff to happen in Downing Street. Uh, also, Rory, he's misled Parliament many, many, many times on all those occasions when he stood up and said, I've been assured there was no parties, I've been assured there was no breaking of the rules. He was at them. He was breaking the rules sufficient for the police, who won't have done this lightly. The police will have been a bit scared of this. They will not have done this lightly. And they've decided that he broke those laws. And I think that allied to breaking the ministerial code, means he has to go. And if he doesn't, and I, I've written a piece for The New European on the back of this, saying that if, if they, do they believe in the rule of law or don't they? Do they believe in ministers upholding high standards or don't they? Do they think that ministers should not lead mis, mislead parliament? If they think any of that, and they have any integrity at all, they all have to rise up and say, I'm sorry, Johnson, I'm sorry, Sunak, you've both got to go. You're quite right. And there's actually quite a good letter in The Spectator this week from a guy called John Hatt. And he says, the public might be able to forgive somebody getting a fixed penalty notice. That's not what this is about. What this is about is the lie. What this is about is the ministerial code. It's about standing up in Parliament and saying again and again, he didn't do it when he clearly did. I know I was having a discussion with somebody earlier. The Tory, some of the Tory MPs are trying to say it's like a parking fine. The actual equivalent would be to say, I know I've been done for speeding and I know the cops have got the evidence, but I'm going to stand up in Parliament saying that they haven't. 
it's a totally different thing. Exactly. And the, and the thing about the ministerial code, which I can recite virtually verbatim, honesty, openness, objectivity, selflessness, integrity, accountability, and leadership. The only one he scores on is leadership because he leads the others into breaking the other six on a regular basis. And I must admit, I'm a bit surprised by Sunak. I really am. When we get on to the podcast we recorded before what it is now, 3 p.m., um, we, we had a bit of a dispute about Sunak and his other problems. But I'm, I'm genuinely a bit surprised that he would have got caught up in this. But he's clearly got caught up in it sufficiently badly for the police to think he's broken the law as well. The, the, whole, the whole thing is, is, is so horrifying. And I, I'm struggling to sort of get it straight in my mind. But I think that where you've put your finger on it is that democracy in the end, and this is why the ministerial code exists, democracy in the end has to rest on people telling the truth at the dispatch box. Why mm. is that? That's because this is meant to be a partnership with voters. And unless voters hear the truth somewhere in the system, how are you supposed to vote? How are you supposed to work out what's happening in the manifesto? How are you supposed to judge a government? That mm. Democracy needs truth somewhere. And, and this has been broken. Also, I mentioned last week that book I was reading, The Revenge of Power by Moises Naim. He made the point that all of these sort of mega populists like Bolsonaro, Trump, Putin, Modi, Erdogan, part of what they do is to show that they can break the rules and get away with it. Now, Johnson may be thinking he can get away with this, but if he does, if he does, I honestly think our, our democracy is absolutely done for. And one of the things, of course, is that none of this should be a surprise. I remember when we were all talking about this a couple of months ago. And in fact, of course, people pointed out at the time that one of the reasons, if he stays, one of the reasons he'll stay is, as people said, by taking the investigation away from Sue Gray and giving it to the Metropolitan Police, we've created this very weird number of weeks between the time when the scandal broke, since then Ukraine's happened, and people can barely remember what it is anymore, right? It was a, a catastrophic error to take it away from Sue Gray and give it to the Metropolitan Police in this way, because if Johnson saves, that'll be why. People won't be able to keep it straight in their minds. But lying is so much part of what he does. I mean, I, I got in trouble uh, because I, I pointed out that this is a guy who you know, was sacked from two jobs for lying, who obviously his private life suggests an enormous amount of misleading an incredible number of different types of partners. Almost every MP I know has got a story of him lying to them. I mean, it's his trade. It's what he does. It's the whole mm. shtick. So the idea that anyone should be shocked or have needed to look for evidence, it was pretty clear from the beginning that this is what was going on. We can see the photographs. But what do you think your former colleagues are going to do? Because if they've got any integrity, they've got to ask, they've got to say, we're not supporting you. I'm afraid the answer is that a few will come out and say they're not supporting him. But I fear it may not be enough to trigger a leadership call. The thing that will really bring him down, I believe now, is going to be the May election results, because they cannot believe now that he can win the next election. And the Tory party is very, very ruthless. Earlier on in the podcast, when we were talking, you were talking about the fact that <laughs> every leader of the Conservative Party that's ever Don't been, give away my son's with, best stat of the week. <laughs> has, has, uh, with, with three exceptions, has managed to win an election, right? With four. Four exceptions. Now, why is that? That is because, in the end, the Conservative Party um, is very, very ruthless. They're very good at putting people in place before the election who are going to win that election. And I don't think they can seriously believe that this man is a winner anymore. That this, and if they don't think he's a winner, that's what will take him down, not so much the details of this.
Yeah, but if they even think that he can survive and limp on for uh, even as far as that, I'm afraid I think they will all deserve to get swept away because it suggests that they're all willing. Just think about this. It means they're fine about having a prime minister and a leader who has broken his own law. It means that they're fine about lying about it, which they've all had to do because they've all had to go and trot out all the defences. It means they're fine about having somebody in charge of the nation's finances who has also broken the law and who's also been engulfed by all this other stuff that we're going to be talking about uh, in the stuff that we recorded earlier. I mean, I just find it absolutely mind-blowing. And I keep thinking, my God, can you imagine what the media would be like on this if this was a Labour government? It would be meltdown time. I think... If you were talking to a Tory MP now, getting rid of Boris Johnson is not just a moral thing to do. Right? It's not just the right thing to do for the country because he's not actually running the country well. We can see that. Hasn't delivered on his promises. Nobody really believes that levelling up is now going to happen in the North. Nobody really believes he's got a solution to the cost of living crisis. It's not just sort of good governance. It's also the practical thing to do. Their best hope of winning the next election is to get rid of him, start again and do a better job. But it, look, it also looks, in, in doing that, they're going to be taking out the favourite to succeed him as well. So, Rory, maybe you need to get back there. You need to get back there, back <laughs> into another contest. I think there should be four by-elections on the same day. Richmond, Uxbridge, Wakefield for the guy who's child sex abuse, and then the dandruff snorter, the man who couldn't work out whether it was dandruff or cocaine that he was putting up his nose. Four by-elections, the same day. Let's get a bit of movement in our politics. And now... The rest of the podcast, where we talk about Macron, where we talk about politicians' wives, and where Alistair and I get into a bit of feisty disagreement. And a bit of music at the end. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And today, Alistair, I guess we're going to be touching on France where you're sitting. I can see that the listeners can't see a sort of very beautiful French impressionist painting behind your your shoulder. Um, We're going to touch on Rishi Sunak and politicians' partners. But maybe if we could start with France. Tell us us where you are. Tell us what's going on. Uh, I'm about, I'm just outside Avignon. Um, I've been here for a few days since getting back from the Côte d'Ivoire. I was here on Sunday for the first round of the presidential election. And I think it's, the next two weeks are going to be absolutely fascinating. Um, France, as you probably know, is a pretty difficult country to govern. And I think in a bizarre sort of way, it's become even more difficult, despite Macron being such a force of nature that he kind of came almost from a standing start and became president. But you now have these three poles of power. You have him as a kind of pro-European centrist, um, probably a little bit right of centre, you have the extreme right with Le Pen and Zamor, and you have the extreme left with Mélenchon, who did far better than people expected. And frankly, if the communist um, Fabien Roussel had not stood, uh, might actually have tipped out Le Pen. Um, so it's a very, very... And, and now we're down to exactly the same runoff as the last time, Macron against Le Pen. Um, I think the smart money still has to be on Macron, but I think we're just in very, very, very volatile times. And I've been a little bit, I was telling Macron's people, I was talking to them yesterday, I was saying I'm being a little bit alarmed at some of the people who are telling me they're either not voting or they might actually vote Le Pen. And I think the turnout was incredibly low, wasn't it? 
No, it wasn't. It wasn't as low as the lowest ever was two thousand and two, and it wasn't right. as low as that. It was lower than they want for sure, and they're really worried about turnout in the second round because Mélenchon, although he did say to his followers, uh, "I don't want anybody to give a single vote to Marine Le Pen," he did not say vote Macron, and I think they're worried that some people will vote Le Pen from a sort of far left Putinist position, if you like, and. A lot of people just won't bother to vote. So Macron's job between now and the 24th is to drive up those who didn't vote first time round, and in particular those who voted for Mélenchon, to understand that whatever they feel about Macron, they really don't want um, a hard right uh, Le Pen as president of France, which would be, I think, catastrophic, not just for France, but for Europe. Obviously, if we go back to the big story, the big story seems to be in France, as in other European countries there has been a massive collapse of the traditional parties of the left and the right. So the Socialist Party, which dominated French politics and which was you know, winning elections until not very long ago, basically has disappeared. Two and percent. The, two percent. Yeah. And the old Gaullist right-wing party, again, down at 4.75%. So it's, it's as though the Conservative and Labour parties in Britain were suddenly going into an election where having dominated politics for decades that they're, they're down at two and five they're gone they're gone yeah why is that well i think it's some of the same reasons that we've seen leading to a further polarization in our own politics and in america but there was a question actually from somebody called rust keys we've got lots of questions again this week uh and he asked the question could a new party like on marsh emerge in the uk and if not why not and i think it's i think the answer is probably that it's very, very unlikely, despite the dissatisfaction with the Tories and with Labour. You found this when you were running as an independent. It's very difficult to break through that. And of course, we don't have a presidential system. Macron was able to come along, create a party, create a brand around himself, and essentially blow away the other two. Um, and he's done it again. He's done it again, but he's done it without succeeding in what he wanted to do, which was basically to say, if you have me to vote for, there's no reason to vote for the extremes. People have actually voted for the extremes in even bigger numbers than the last time. So, so I, obviously, running as an independent to be mayor of London, thought a lot about Macron and the way that that worked. And the key in London was the electoral system, which was like the French presidential system. Yeah. So the way it would have worked for me as an independent is if I'd been able to beat the conservative candidate and come in in second place, there then would have been a runoff between me and Sadiq Khan. And then if I could convince the people who were not prepared to vote for Sadiq Khan, the Conservative voters, to vote for me, I might just have sneaked through. And it's those systems, because that's essentially what happened to Macron. He got, I think, last election, 20-odd percent in the first round, and then he goes into the final round and he manages to win a majority. But that's just been destroyed in Britain. The Conservatives and Labour basically abstained on this and didn't oppose it, have now turned all the local elections in Britain into first past the post. Yeah. I, I don't know whether to some extent that's because they were worried by how close I came to beating the Conservative candidate and pulling this trick off or whether I had nothing to do with it. But it's very striking that the last space left in British politics for an independent candidate to come through, which is in these mayoral races, has just been removed last week in the House of Lords. I know. And it's also, I think it underlines what we were talking about last week about Orban, that Johnson really doesn't like... Um, Anything. He likes to skew the rules in his own favour, and uh, he's pretty ruthless at at doing that. 
Um, but listen, Macron, I, I, I know Macron reasonably well, and I think he's a phenomenal, uh, well, he's very, very clever, very clever. He's one of the smartest politicians I think I've ever met. Um, but it's extraordinary how the depth of hatred that some people express for him, including people that you really wouldn't, you'd really think were right on his pitch. And it's a very, very strange thing. There's another question we got from Will Democrat 64. He, he's asking, you know, what, what I saw as the similarities between what Macron did and New Labour. And I think what Macron did was, you know, way more ambitious in a way, actually to start to come out of the, part, the, the Parti Socialiste and start his own movement, start his own party. But of course, what he's found, as a lot of people found, we found this in government, you can win. And we, you know, we, we won well. 25 years ago now and then one again and one again but we had at least had the party and even if we didn't look after the party maybe as we should have done Macron hasn't really developed the party and the real problem he's going to have if as I hope he does he wins is that then they have the legislative the parliamentary elections and there there's no way that he's going to do as well as Omar did last time and that's when he starts having to really he talked about je vais tendre la main i'm going to reach out to others but he really is going to have to do that once that gets once that happens so there are some things which i love about him as a politician at the center i mean obviously one of those is i loved his listening tours i loved seeing him sitting in those municipal halls for 2 3 hours at a time with people shouting at him and just taking it all in i loved his embrace of data and technology the ways he tried to use that but I was also very struck that what made him successful as a centrist was his ability to be outrageous and offend both right and left. I mean, his, his trick actually was frequently to make very right-wing comments followed by very left-wing comments or the other way around. So I remember in the last election, he came out very hard attacking the French colonial record and apologizing for everything they'd done, which really irritated the right and got him fantastic headlines in the left-wing press. And then followed that up two days later with a massive anti-immigration rant and complaints about Islam, which got him huge headlines in the right-wing press and really alienated the left. And oddly, rather than what you might have thought, which is that this was losing him friends on every side, it was actually massively building his profile and exciting people. I think that's right. And, and look, it became a bit of a joke. He had this, this, this catchphrase, en même temps. Uh, you know, at the same time, and he would he would sort of say something, and then say mais en même temps, and then put the opposite point of view, and and he did have this, and I think it was deliberate. This was very kind of new labour in its approach. It was basically saying, the centre is a large space, and I am going to command it, and he's pretty much he's done that. Um, and it, look, one of the th one of the reasons why he's going to probably struggle to get all of the Mélenchon supporters, twenty percent was a lot, to get them to come over to him is that he was absolutely adamant that he was going to put this raising the pensionable age right at the heart of his programme for reform. Because he wants to say, I've been stopped from doing a lot of the reforms because we had COVID, uh, which was a crisis, which I think he handled pretty well. We've then got Ukraine, but I'm going to do it. And of course, that has enraged a lot of the people on the left. Um, and they're the people he now needs. So whether he kind of now softens that a bit, but you're right, he doesn't mind saying what he thinks, provoking both sides. And, but it's, you know, he's, he's definitely, he's got to, and he knows this, he's got to campaign a lot harder in the last, in the next two weeks than he has in the last few months. And, and it's going to be tough, isn't it? Because Melanchol, in a sense, is a kind of Jeremy Corbyn figure, isn't he? So it's going to be very, very uncomfortable for him trying to say the things that will appeal to that kind of voter base. 
Absolutely. And he, and he mustn't do it by sort of pretending to be something that he's not. He's got to be do it by saying, look, you may not like me for all sorts of reasons, but I am actually a progressive and I do believe in helping the poor and I do believe in the environment and, and so on and so forth. And, and I think he will, he will do that. Um, the debate, the TV debate will be incredibly important. And last time he absolutely destroyed Le Pen. But this time, I think because the bar will be quite low for her, because she has actually sort of repackaged herself in quite a cynical but moderately effective way. And, you know, I think she will also be playing a little bit on the Michael Gove, people are sick to death of experts thing. You know, yeah, we know he's intelligent. We know he's got a brain the size of the planet. Uh, but you know, I'm, I want to speak for the common man. And that's what she's been trying to do. She even said in her, in her speech, accepting the runoff, you know, you know, celebrating getting into the, the last two, it was very pitched at cost of living, the people who've been forgotten and left behind, communities left behind. It was, it was very kind of Brexity in without, she's moved on Europe. She doesn't want people to think she's taking that European Union, but he will, he will pin her on that. There's, her program is very incoherent. And I think that's where he'll try and take her apart. Well, did, did you get much of a sense of him as a personality? I mean, do you get, have you had relaxed times with him where you can really get a sense of him as a person or are you just getting a sense of a big brain in a bottle? No, I've, I've had, um, sort of, you know, private meeting and exchanges with him. Um, I like him. I mean, I, I think as a personality, he's got something very, very special about him. I'd, I, I met him first when he was campaigning, first time around. And I think at the time he was like fifth favourite. And he basically said, I'm going to win this. And he said it with a a conviction that w- wasn't just bullshit. It was like he'd worked it out and he was absolutely going to go for it. Um, I think, you know, he's a, he's like me. He's a, he's a football fan. He's, he's, his French team like Bayern is Marseille. Um, he's, he's very, very smart. And I think he is, he's incredibly well read. Um, very sort of musical, very, he's a very, very broad minded, well developed brain kind of guy. Would, would it work in British politics, that, that type of person, that type of personality? Do you think the British would vote for someone like that? It's hard to tell. Look, I mean, Johnson, does sort of try to project himself as, you know, the Latin and the, and the classics and all that sort of stuff. So he tries to project himself as a bit of a, a bit of yeah, an but, intellectual. But, but, I think, but, but, but Boris is more of a comedian, right? I mean, Boris is very lighthearted about all of that. He, he does is, that he as, is, a kind of, it, as a kind of joke, whereas Macron is very earnest. I mean, he's, he basically delivers one hour sort of academic lectures to the French public. I mean, it's not did, like. He did one last week that was two hours, 20 minutes. Um, and he does litter them with, you know, quotes from the classics and quotes from the great French literature and, and so forth. But I think he's got, look, he doesn't have that sort of Blair, Obama, Clinton common touch in a way. But when you see him, you mentioned those sort of circular talks that he did. When you see him work a crowd and when you see him, what I, what I really like about him, and there we saw Johnson this week doing a walkabout in Kiev, but I've, I've noticed that Johnson has not done a walkabout in his own country for a very, very long time. Macron goes out and plunges into crowds and he almost seems to enjoy it more when they're giving, a bit, giving him a bit of a hard time. He really likes an argument. He loves the confrontation, doesn't he? But there's a very sort of prickly bit to him too. I, I there's a great scene I think, a few months ago where somebody criticizes him from the crowd and he steps forward and he says, I am the president of France. You never speak to the president of France like that. Right? You will show respect. No, that was, that was when the young boy called him Manu. That's right. Uh, no, I thought that was a little bit sort of uh, Sunak-esque in its thin skinnedness. But, you know, in a way, I think what he's doing, look, he, 
if you read the biographies of Macron, it's obvious that his grandmother was an incredibly important figure in his life, and she absolutely worshipped him. And this whole thing about Jupiter, this feeling that he was going to be special and, and he was going to do something amazing with his life, I think he's always felt it and still does. And it's interesting how some of the people who are now lending him their support, as it were, the Greens, uh, Pécresse, the, the sort of Tory leader course, who's, yeah. who's vanished... <laughs> Um, they are, they're sort of making the point, it cannot be Jupiter Mark II. There's got to be a greater kind of sense of, of, of reaching out to other people. But look, he, he, I think he'll win. I think he'll win. But I meet a few people who, I, I was talking to a, a French journalist yesterday. Who, she said that, you know, I really worry this is our Brexit Trump moment. And what was it? Just, just finally, before we move on, because we're on thin skinness, and we'll move on to Rishi and, and Rishi's <laughs> wife in a second. But, but the... Um, do, do you get a sense that where the limits of his mind are, okay, he's a clever guy, but generally, or any clever guy I know has limits, has things where they're not as clever as they think they are, things they're less good at getting their head around. And presumably there are a lot of French intellectuals out there looking at him saying, okay, he's a very smart guy, but he's not quite as smart as he thinks he is in this direction or that direction. Well, you definitely see those a lot of those in French. In fact, in fact, there was a on the on the main TV panel the other night. There was a there was a guy who was billed as ex politician, now a philosopher. <laughs> and of course, for him, there was no there's no brain large enough. Um, I think he's certainly somebody who's. I think he's got a very analytical mind. So, for for example, if you think about, I think Europe for him is a massive thing. He sees France's future as being utterly bound up in Europe. Uh, I think that's probably one of the things that he'll really go at Le Pen on. Um, and then I think things like, you know, Ukraine, some of the big spending stuff that he works on. I don't see, I don't think he's got a limit as, as a politician, as it were. Um, but you're right. We all have limits in terms of where we can, where we can take that brain. And, but I do, find, I, one of the things I find it really baffling when I'm, you know, whether, whether talking to him or talking to the people who are working with him is I find it genuinely difficult to work out why there is this visceral hatred of him amongst otherwise what seem to me to be reasonable people. And I wonder whether it's just that the French, you know, <laughs> the, the revolting French and all that. I do wonder whether the French, there's something uniquely French about this thing about, like Chirac, for example. Chirac was, you know, widely loathed by a lot of French yeah. people. Yeah. After, he, after he left office... He could do no wrong. He had approval ratings up in the 80s and 90%. Well, it's amazing, amazing what, what the French do to their leaders. I mean, I was picking on the fact that Hollande didn't run again because his approval ratings were at 4%. Yeah. yeah. And he was about to hit the next Absolutely. election. I mean, it's, it's, and then look at what's happened to Sarkozy. I'm sorry, one more thing about uh, him, which is obviously a bit, bit weird, uh, or maybe I shouldn't be pushing at it because we're about to get on to politicians and their spouses, and it's a good route through. He, like Alex Salmond, is, his partner is much, much older than him, isn't he? Yeah. Sort of almost yeah. old enough, basically, to be his mother. Well, she was his teacher. Exactly. And there's a very, very interesting thing, I think, which I do think they, Alex Hammond and Macron seem to have in common, which is that sense that they're sort of very precocious, brilliant schoolboys, almost being sort of mothered by an older woman who feels mm. very, um, yeah, who adores them and allows them to almost be the sort of perfect only child. Or maybe I'm, I'm getting into cod psychology here and well, I have no right to get into that Well, is, is a very dangerous area, as we, as we know. But I, th there's something very, very... Look, the story, I think, is, is really fascinating. So there's a kid at school who has the hots for one of his teachers. 
Now, that is a, a sentiment that I think is known to, I don't know whether this, whether you were allowed women teachers at your school, Rory, but I, it's a sentiment that I could readily identify with. I can remember one of my French teachers, probably why I'm so obsessed with French, but I, I really had the hots. Um, but he didn't just have the hots. He then sort of, you know, it went somewhere and she's become his kind of life partner. And, and, it, and also what I think is interesting, she's, I don't think we'd be having this conversation about, I'm trying to think of male politicians with, with much old. You know, if if it was a man that we were talking about, that yeah. was the spouse. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. I I think it's a sort of there's a bit of, but it is. I agree. It's a very very interesting thing. And whether it does relate to the fact that he had this grandmother that absolutely worshipped him and adored the sort of, you know, the ground he walked on. But she's a very important person in in his, um, you know, obviously the spouse of any senior politician is, but I think she's she's got a very, very political mind as well, and, and he draws on it quite a lot. Okay, so moving on to spouses, we've got uh, Rishi Sunak and his spouse. And uh, you were being, I thought, quite interesting a couple of weeks ago in discussing it and saying that you acknowledge that there's a, there's a challenge, and what do you do if uh, there is an issue, right? In that particular case, it was that, Infosys, which is her father's company, was investing in Moscow. I believe they've now announced that they're withdrawing from Russia. And she's also, I think, now announced that she's going to be paying UK tax on her worldwide income. But somewhere in the middle of all of this is a very, very, what must be a very difficult relationship within that household. And I guess some people might ask, what is it that one's asking from a politician? I know that, that you on social media have been very angry with them and have been very keen to put the boot in about this issue. Well, as you, as you constantly say, Rory, you keep saying that I play the man, not the ball. I don't think I do. I just think it is politically stupid, but I also think it's wrong for a Chancellor of the Exchequer to be standing up there telling us that we've got to pay more tax in breach of a manifesto promise, whilst at the same time he is fully aware of arrangements that his wife is making Ad, and which are increased by some of the tax changes that he's making um, without there being kind of openness and transparency about that. And for him then to turn around and bleat that this is some kind of smear campaign against her, I'm sure you read the ministerial code when you were a minister. You have to be very careful about your own financial affairs, but also those of your spouse and key family members. And I think he's just, I think we're back to this thing about this lot think the rules don't apply to them. Okay, let, let, me, let me make the defence. And I think it was a very good defence made by David Gork in a New Statesman article on this. Your, your favourite politician. My favourite politician. Essentially, this comes down to these very weird non-DOM rules and the whole idea that you can be living in the United Kingdom but not domiciled and you don't have to pay UK tax on your worldwide incomes. And Ed Balls, of all people, during the 2015 campaign, came out and said, these non-DOM rules are right and we have to be very careful about getting rid of them because if we got rid of them, we're going to end up with a lot of wealthy people who are bringing money into the United Kingdom, not living in the United Kingdom. So this was not just a conservative policy, right? This was a mm -hmm. new Labour policy, which Ed Balls was fully behind, and your government did nothing in its Correct. entire time in office yeah, to get rid of the non-DOM stuff. Yeah. So he's married a lady who's an Indian citizen and who pays taxes in India and whose income is in India. And she is, as far as he's concerned, I guess, when they sat down and talked about it, she is absolutely following the law in the United Kingdom. But she's now said she'll pay full UK tax. And I think if her income's 19 million, that means that she will be voluntarily, without having to, she's not obliged to by the law, voluntarily paying 
millions of pounds mm. for the privilege of her husband being a member of parliament. And I can completely understand that most people listening to this will think, well, you know, I can't relate to that anyway. These people are so wealthy, it doesn't make any difference to them. But I think it's worth the public asking themselves, if they were in that position, do they think that someone should be paying voluntarily millions of pounds just for the privilege of being a member of parliament when they're under no legal obligation to do that? Right, but I do think, first of all, it is a privilege and it is certainly a, 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 an incredible power and privilege to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. And given that one of the ministerial guidelines they're meant to abide by is openness and transparency, if it is defensible, then in my view, Rishi Sunak should have been open and transparent about it. I have to say, I think Sajid Javid should have been as well. There's a guy who served there as well. And he was a non-dom for six years. But we've only found that out now because some journalist has, has sort of has, has dug it out. And I also think, by the way, that um, this green card issue, I mean, he had a green card while he was a minister. A green card is a step away from being an American citizen. I find that I find that mind blowing, and I think, and, and look, I think I think Rory. And let me yeah. say something else, yeah. Rory. I yeah. noticed, in fact, Fiona, my partner, spotted this. She said that Rory's pretty good at putting the boot into Johnson, but he defends the rest of them quite well. Is ah. that a fair point? Is this you? Is this you looking? Somebody actually, one of the many good questions this week, Rory, <laughs> was one that I can't remember who put this one in, but somebody said to you, Rory, if Johnson went and somebody a bit more reasonable and sensible were to be Tory leader, would you go back in? So I think you've got me on the record being disobliging about a lot of my colleagues. Uh, Liz Truss, famously, you enjoyed my tweeting out. You, you enjoyed me having a go at David Cameron, at George Osborne, at Boris Johnson. So both, for, both of, former, but, both off the scene. But Rishi Sunak, I think, is, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not particularly fond of Rishi Sunak. He's not a guy that uh, I particularly got on with when I was in Parliament. And I think I uh, have talked on previous episodes about these very weird conversations that I had with him uh, when we were trying to debate things like whether people should be sent to prison for not paying their council mm. tax or not paying their TV licence. But I do feel there is something very, very uh, disturbing about th this sort of political life and what it means psychologically for I somebody. I agree with that. And, and what that. has happened to him, which is that he has now, in an instant, finds his wife under attack, will be very anxious about his relationship with her, with his in-laws. They're moving out of 11 Downing Street. He's basically being accused of being a liar and a criminal when, from his point of view, he hasn't actually broken any law at all. And... I think there is a real sense. And when I, I was saying to a friend that I felt sorry for him, and my friend laughed and said, what do you mean you feel sorry for him? I'm enjoying it enormously, right? But obviously for me as an ex-politician, I don't really enjoy seeing this happening to anyone. Labour, Conservative, Lib Dem, I think. And it's one of the reasons we don't end up with good politicians because yeah. if you take someone like Rishi, okay, he uh, has, you know, he's a, son from a relatively modest background. He's a GP's son uh, from Britain, second generation immigrant, was very lucky to go to a good school, worked very hard at university. Plenty of good schools in the state sector, Rory. Uh, yeah, good schools in the state sector. And he married a wealthy lady. And he had enormous opportunities. And I think that's what this green card story is about. He studied in California, but he chose to come back to Britain and put himself in the public limelight. And in doing so, he gave up quite a lot financially, and he's giving up quite a lot more. All that's fine. I think that's good. And I think I, you know, I respect people for doing that. Zach Goldsmith did the same. He had been, I think, 
non-resident for tax purposes, and I think ended up paying an enormous amount of money in order to have the privilege of becoming a member of parliament. I think it's good that people do that. But I think there is something very, very, um, that I find, it's one of the reasons I found being a member of parliament very traumatizing, because I never did something on that scale. I was never in the center of that kind of scandal. But when it happens, my God, you feel awful. And I can understand why, you know, members of parliament go through very, very tough times, because it's all over the newspapers, right? All I your kids are I've got to say to you, Roy, I don't think he's getting nearly as much of a harder time uh, as many, many politicians that I know have gone through. Um, and I think his attempt to pretend that it's some kind of smear against his wife, as opposed to people asking legitimate questions about his and his family's tax arrangements, I think he's um, revealing himself to be very, very thin-skinned, slightly petulant. And I'm afraid, I think this is a government led by Johnson who, for whom they really do think the rules don't apply to them. And the green card, the green card thing, Rory, honestly, I had an American friend telling me, he said, have you any idea what it means to have a green card? You're basically American once you've got that. <laughs> you know, they don't, you, 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 they don't even let you travel until you sort of prove that you do, you know, you're paying all your taxes in the right place and, and so forth. So I think, um, and also I think the other thing that I don't know if you've crossed this today, but there's more revelations today about the level of access that Infosys have had to government. I think it's 15 one-on-one -on -one ministerial meetings. Well, that, you know, I just think you've got to be very, very careful when you're the Chancellor of the Exchequer. My guess is that... Boris Johnson is probably quite enjoying this. I think he feels threatened by Rishi Sunak. Rishi was the big challenger to him. And I think when Rishi Sunak's saying it's a bit of a smear campaign, he's not just talking about journalists going after him. I think he suspects that number 10 is feeding quite a lot of this. And, is and do you enjoying. think that's possible? Do you think that's possible? I think it's perfectly possible that people inside number 10 are quite enjoying dripping this stuff through suggesting wow. that he's going off on holiday in California when he probably isn't going off on holiday in California, drawing people's attentions to questions they might ask about his tax, asking about the green card. Mm. Because I think he is, apart from Rishi Sunak, it's difficult to see who really is in a position to challenge Boris Johnson. That's really in interesting because yesterday I was talking to a, a publisher um, about a, a book that I'm working on and, and, and he said, you know, this government, I, I just... I actually think they're capable of anything. So, you know, if you'd have said to me in normal times 10 years ago, oh, I think the Prime Minister's, you know, ordered his team to leak details against the Chancellor about his tax, he'd, I'd have said that's just impossible. But do you know what? With this lot, I think anything's possible. But I, I must admit, I, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of slightly gobsmacked at, at you. Mind you, you're proving my point that you like putting the boot into Johnson. <laughs> Alistair, I guess a lot of people keep pushing us to disagree, and we've had a pretty pretty meaty disagreement there going off the next last 15, 20 minutes, and there are other people pushing to know more things we disagree on. So why don't we take a break, and after the break, come back and do a little bit more, uh, hopefully, pleasant arguing with each Let's other. Let's disagree agreeably on a few things. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos... 
Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rory, our sponsor, The New European, is back. It's the place to get brilliant analysis and commentary on issues both British and all around the world. And in their Easter issue, they've had a very, very interesting piece by Clive Irving on the future of the monarchy. Front page headline, Monarchy RIP. Now, I think maybe it needed a question mark afterwards, but as Matt Kelly, the editor, said to me, question marks are for wimps. Clive says, millions of the Queen's subjects don't share her past and we all live in a present that simultaneously weakens the whole of the past while making the future seem no longer within our control. In such a liminal, liminal atmosphere, the monarchy is dangerously vulnerable because its rituals display such a reverence for the past. Rory, views? Well, well, I mean, I first think the guy sounds like kind of Emmanuel Macron, sounds like a French philosopher. Um, I think that he's put his finger on the question, which is the relationship to the past. And that's something I think we've talked about ourselves, which is how Britain responds to tradition. And my instinct is that, yes, he's right. The world is in an ever more rapidly lurching modern spasms. It changes, you know, all the monarchy time. RIP? But monarchy RIP? No, but I think no. because of that, because of kind of lurching, shuddering modernity, people are going to want to keep some roots and connection to the past. And that's mm. probably why the British monarchy will survive when almost every other monarchy in the world is disappearing. Well, there you go. If you want to read that piece and lots of others, including my weekly column, go to the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash rest is politics and you'll get a special offer for our listeners you get the annual whack for 52 quid digital and you get print plus digital for 104 pounds a year which is just two pounds a week and i worked that out all on my own so that's the new european.co.uk forward slash rest is politics and now back to the podcast So welcome back to, to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alastair Campbell. And on to questions. We've got a lot of questions this week. So Ed Tyler says, apart from private schools, on the pod, we've had almost complete agreement on most key issues. Johnson, Brexit, migration, international development, cost of living. What are major policy areas you both seriously disagree on? It's a sort of curiously timed question, because I think we've just been having one of our more scratchy disagreements for the last 15 minutes. But About any Rishi. thoughts? So what else do we disagree on? Are you, where, do, where do you... St- I mean, I would get rid of the House of Lords. What would you do with it? Yeah, I'd keep it. I'd try to improve what we have. I guess that's where we're getting to, aren't we? That I, I think, in the end, I can't really get around it. You're, you're, you're Labour, and I come from a kind of conservative tradition. And okay, I, what I, about... What about um, I'm in favour of compulsory voting, are you? And I'm in favour of lowering the voting age. Oh, I'm against lowering the voting age. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I like the voting age being at 18. Why? And I think because I think generally the people who want to lower the voting age down to 16, in my experience, I mean, maybe I'm being very unfair, but I generally think it's um, something that whenever I go around schools, it's a great way of getting a cheer in school. Everybody loves to hear it. But nobody wants to have a serious conversation with somebody on why it should be 16. I don't agree. I, th- I, if I, I, I think there's even a case for bringing it even lower than 16 to get people in schools really engaged and interested in politics. 
Um, and when I go into schools, I've got to tell you, um, into state schools where people have very healthy debates and don't all agree with each other about, you know, the monarchy and all that stuff, I find that the conversations are often deeper and more interesting than if I go into a room full of 50 and 60 and 70-year-olds. There's got to be a cutoff, hasn't there? There's got to be a place where you draw a line. You're suggesting 15, right? People can't, yeah. drive, a, people can't drive a car till they're 17. There's a lot of evidence that we'd be much safer if people weren't allowed to drive cars till they were 18. Why is that, Alistair? Why is it we think people shouldn't drive cars? Uh, there are a lot of old people who get their licences taken away yeah, because they can't never drive the, safely. Never there the is an, I think, it's, is it David Runciman who argues that we should lower the voting age to five? I'm not arguing for this, by the way. But <laughs> it just as a way, actually, of getting families engaged, much more engaged okay. in politics. I have a five-year-old. I've, okay. I've got a five-year-old. Oh, right. okay, okay. okay, now, I, I can assure you, he just, just, just had his, his birthday yesterday. <laughs> Uh, that if I were to ask his views on, on how to vote, that would not really go well. I he disagree would, he, with He would probably say uh, he'd, he'd, he'd vote Labour. And also, by the way, you're an ex-soldier, Rory. You can join the army at 16. But you can't actually go into combat till you're 18. Why is okay. that? In fact, okay. it's considered child soldiers. In fact, the fact that Britain allows people to join the army at 16, 17 is illegal, many people argue, under international law. All right, we've, we've disagreed okay. on that. Here's another thing we disagree on, um, on. I think. Um, I was very much in favour of trying to get a soft Brexit compromise, trying to push for a kind of customs union compromise, yeah. keep Britain as close as possible to the European Union. But I accepted the result of the Brexit referendum and you were going for a second referendum, weren't you? People's vote, we called it. Uh, <laughs> a, a referendum on the outcome, which I thought was an entirely democratic way of resolving the issue. And I think if we look at the mess now, look, the reason why I didn't think your approach worked is because I don't believe those who were driving the debate on the right, Brexiteers, were ever, ever, ever going to accept what uh, Theresa May was trying to do. I respect her for trying to do it in the way that she did, but it failed because of that political reality. And I felt the only way to fully to resolve this issue was actually to say, OK, get the deal and then put that to the, peop that to the people and see where we are. Um, now, we failed as well. And that's why, but, you know, we probably both have to accept some responsibility for the absolute mess that we're in now. And honestly, you talk about Brexit, have you seen these queues in Kent? Um, they're just unbelievable. And, and trying to, it, it's almost, it's Orwellian, the extent to which Brexit has been written out of the equation. It's all to do with P&O, it's to do with bad weather, it's to do with Easter holidays. And once the, the, the new restrictions start coming the other way, we are going to be in a hell of a mess. Yeah. So, but let's not revisit Brexit. Can I, can I put a question to you? Go on then. And this one comes from a very distinguished listener a member of the House of Lords on which we disagree, a former leader of the Labour Party, none other than Neil Kinnock, who sent this message, Rory, said, it's Neil here, enjoying the podcast, so far so good. I have to say, I found Rory Stewart's explanation as to why he is a Tory surprisingly unformed and unconvincing. And I must admit, Rory, I didn't give you a go last week, but I agree with that. I think you, I think when it boils down there's another great question here from Will Deans. He says that Rory Stewart sounds like the biggest liberal Democrat I have ever heard. What's holding him back? So, I mean, let's go back to why you're a Tory. Last week, you basically said you want to make a difference in the world. Well, I think people on the left are motivated by that even more than people on the right. Okay. Well, let, let me take it back to the beginning. And obviously, <laughs> I think about this a lot, worry about this a lot. And I'm now an independent, so I'm not a member of any party. I wasn't, I'd been a member of the Labour Party when I was 18. Then I wasn't a member of any party. 
And I only came into politics because of the expenses scandal. So I wasn't a member of the Conservative Party. David Cameron did this strange thing in 2009 when he said he wanted people who hadn't been involved in politics before to stand as MPs. I realized when I got into Parliament that one of my problems was that I'm not very ideological. I'm not actually very interested in a lot of the fights between Labour and Conservative and the kind of things they're fighting about. I think that the things that really I love about politics, I loved Cumbria, loved working my constituents. I loved trying to get super fast broadband installed. I loved trying to build affordable housing with community groups. I'm very, very interested in being a minister. I love running government departments, trying to improve them, trying to get, you know, development workers out into the field more, trying to improve the state of prisons. I, I'm interested in geopolitics. I'm very interested in how Britain relates with the rest of the world. But I'm not really part of the the sort of debate of the 1980s. I, mm. I didn't look at those politicians that you knew well through the 1980s on either side with any sort of admiration. I grew up seeing them as spitting image puppets, a whole lot of them, kind of weird, contorted figures. I didn't think Margaret Thatcher's wonderful or Tony Benn's wonderful or, you know, I couldn't really see the point of Jim Callaghan. I, and I, I, so I, I, actually, it was a weakness for me. I came into Parliament realising that I wasn't really that into politics. I, I didn't really have any political heroes. <laughs> so, so Neil's onto something. He spotted something there. He did so spot he's, something. He's definitely spotted something. But I suppose that there are, there are things which... Um, maybe, you should, maybe you should have just stayed as a civil servant. Yeah, I, I, I often thought that. I actually realised in prisons that I would have loved to be the chief executive of the prison service. I, I thought, actually, what I should be is not the prison's minister. I should have applied to be chief executive of the prison service. But there are some things, I was thinking about this, which are, which are sort of um, to do with things we love and relate to. I, for example, am passionate about small farmers in the Lake District. I have very warm feelings towards the British Army, as you tease me, towards the monarchy, I really have a lot of admiration for tradition, for British history, for the British past. I tend to feel, this is me explaining why I'm a Tory, not Labour. I tend to feel that, um, yeah, I tend to believe in slow evolution, fixing things in a practical way rather than revolutionary change. Mm. And I also find, or I felt when I was in Parliament, that one of the things that put me off the Labour Party is that they are so, can be very, very aggressive and vicious towards opponents in a, mm. in a different way. I mean, do you think, would you put me in that category? Well, I, I guess that I, I, maybe, maybe, maybe. So one of the things that somebody once said to me, which I think did strike a, strike a chord, which is that the conservatives in parliament think that Labour are basically well-intentioned, but wrong. Whereas Labour basically think Tories are evil. I think they're evil, but I think that, I, I also think that they, they, they managed to skew the political scales in their favor and my, my my the other rory in my life my son he sent me this extraordinary extraordinary fact this week how many conservative leaders before tony blair did not become prime minister i don't know what is the answer, answer is one austin wow. chamberlain how many conservative leaders did not become prime minister while tony blair was around three how many Conservative leaders have not been Prime Minister since Tony Blair? None. Well, our politics is Conservative dominated. You have to really fight. But so there's, to something, be really, but there's something really interesting there, because of course, 
the kind of, um, you know, without making a sound, you know, obviously we're very different people come from very different places, but I guess we probably read the same newspapers. We see the same stuff on Twitter. And we're basically in a world in which most people we're dealing with are centrist, soft left, and find it very difficult to understand why Labour isn't doing better. But I guess at some level it may be true, and this may be a difficult thing to come to terms with, that the British public may be just in some level more comfortable with conservative policies and conservative ideology than people on the left want to admit. And that the reason why Tony Blair won is that he moved quite strongly towards the centre. Without apologising for it. Yeah, and that the traditional Labour offering just isn't that appealing now Mm. for modern British voters. And that's a difficult thing for the Labour Party to come to terms with. I also think it's about the way that politics is done. If You you know, the, the number of people I've met in my life who say that they really, you know, were really into being Labour until they went to a Labour Party meeting. Uh, and so I don't want to go through that experience again. Um, and I do think there is a real problem with both of the main parties. And I think this is what we're seeing in France with the disappearance of both the main parties who've been very similar in, in the way that they do politics. And Macron did change the way it was done. Um, is that... <sighs> You just sort of think, well, this isn't kind of the way I live my life. And we see that in the, we see that in the way that, you know, I, I think now with the local elections, every time I see these, I mean, every weekend, thousands of tweets out campaigning in so-and-so, fantastic reaction on the doorstep. And there's a picture of a candidate with two people with clipboards. <laughs> and you think, you know, that is not how people live their lives anymore. They live it through data. They live it through screens. You've got to get into them and in different ways. And... No, I think I, I, I but I, but is it not stun? Is that not a truly stunning fact that? And I, you know, I'm yeah. I'm trusting my yeah. son. He's, yeah. He works yeah. in in sports yeah. data and yeah. analytics. So I'm trusting he's done he's done the research. But only one Conservative leader did not become Prime Minister. Whereas, and and the other one, I'd say, as I never tire of saying to people, three times more Etonian Prime Ministers than leaders of the Labour Party. It's incredible. It's it is incredible. But one of the questions, I guess, is what is it that's made whatever you think about it like it or dislike it. And obviously I've left this party, but what has made the Conservative Party literally the most successful electoral machine anywhere globally? I mean, this is a party that's been around yeah. for well over 200 years. I think you gave some of the answers. I think you gave some of the answers. I think I think those things of, I think that stuff about tradition and history runs really, really strong. And, and I think that people being a little bit scared of change at times. Um, and yet these Conservatives have given us probably the biggest change of our lifetime which is dragging us out of the European Union. There's, there's one question here. I, I bet we're going to disagree on this. Adam, I think it's Motorhead. I've scribbled it from down. We, we had hundreds this week, Roy, hundreds on the, on the Twitter feed. In light of the new restrictions on protest, when does rioting become justified under progression of this framework? Blimey. When does rioting become justified? That sounds like a big, big philosophical question. Um, I guess for the, for the first thing, I don't know what he means by rioting, but I think the first I think thing he, be, I think he means by taking to the streets and 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 like but, the poll tax. But, but, but if you literally mean you literally mean rioting, I think uh, having been in many countries, not just Britain, where riots are taking place, you don't want to underestimate what a horrifying thing that is, mm. how terrifying that is for women, how terrifying that is for people trying to run a small business on the street, how terrifying that is for children, and there are very very good reasons why. You do not want to be living in a society where people are, if, if by writing he means 
rampaging down the streets, attacking, attacking policemen, smashing up shop windows, looting. The point Adam is making is that this government is, and I think under quite a lot of false pretenses, is making what we would define as lawful protest, parts of it are going to be illegal. Well, that I totally disagree with. I think lawful protest is hugely important. And I think there's nothing more powerful than seeing the marches against the Iraq war, the marches, for example, on Brexit. I mean, it's incredibly powerful. The sad thing, of course, is that they, both those things had no impact, did they? Well, Millions I remember, I remember Iraq, when, yeah, when yeah, we got yeah. a million people out on the streets to march for the, um, the people's vote. Yeah. I remember Adam Bolton, then at Sky News, did a tweet, which he got a lot of flack for. But actually, I think he was making a serious point. He actually, and I remember this, he said, marches don't change things, riots do. And he was obviously thinking about the poll tax. And the fact is that it did have an impact. Um, anyway, I think that's a really interesting question. I think the government needs to think, really think through this thing about protest, because I, th- I, I sense amongst quite a lot of people this, this idea that they are trying to, if you like, criminalise pro Yeah, well, I think that's, that's horrible. And that, that brings us to Pakistan. Sorry, just, just quickly on that, because we had a good, good question on Pakistan. Let me just, let me just pull, it, pull it out. Yeah, Saudi, Saudi Ahmed. Can you please cover the political situation in Pakistan, what this means for its people, Afghanistan, and whether Imran Khan can make a comeback? Now, Imran Khan's a very, very interesting figure. I mean, obviously, somebody who's more famous in Britain than any Pakistani president has ever been, because he was the most glamorous, iconic captain of the Pakistan cricket team. And of course, was, was married to a British citizen. And he, mar- a- he married into the old Etonian family. That's it. Major celebrity. And so I remember first, when he was first running in Pakistan, people saying, guy hasn't got a chance. And then he seems to have made a very interesting deal with the Pakistan military and the Pakistan intelligence services. Which you have to do. Which you have to do. And he got into power. And his opponents certainly would say that he used them as his enforcers. And things became very troubling. I, I, I had time for Imran Khan. And suddenly I'm getting friends of mine from Pakistan, journalists, the editor of the Friday Times, television interviewers, explaining that their friends are being abducted, threatened... They're getting thrown in jail. Their newspapers are getting locked down. He's clamping down on NGOs and civil society. And now he's out. He's been replaced by a guy called Shabazz Sharif, who actually we worked with very closely in Diffid, did amazing education reforms in the Punjab, and actually really impressed my my colleagues. And so they're quite hopeful about his abilities. I mean, you talk about Macron and his brain. People are Mm. quite optimistic about Shabazz Sharif just as a technical administrator. He was a Mm. good governor of Punjab. I think, I, think, I think Imran Khan is probably finished, though. Well, I don't know, because what he's doing is straight out of the populist playbook. He's announced that the whole thing was an American conspiracy, mm. that they've moved against him because he wasn't aggressive enough against Russia for the Ukraine invasion. He's trying to stir up public sentiments, suggesting that he's the champion of Islam against the United States and that the government isn't legitimate. And he's a very, very... He can be a very compelling campaigner. I, mean, you, I think you, you might have seen some of his rallies and his mm. songs. And, so I think in opposition, he's going to be a pretty formidable figure. Mm. Yeah, well, we'll see. I, I, I think, um, look, I've been to Pakistan a few times and it's, it's, it's one of the most brutal political landscapes in the world. Uh, I mean, they are, well, we've seen it this week. They're absolutely brutal with each other. Uh, and you've got to be very, very smart. And you've also got, you do have to, I'm afraid they do have to make pacts with 
the military and the intelligence services and so forth. Now, whether that will one day change, I don't know. It's interesting you 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 um, you mentioned that. I didn't know about his educa this his education record in the Punjab. Uh, I do remember the fact that whenever uh, I went to Pakistan, the, the the thing you get the whole time is this sense of the extent to which Kashmir just dominates the so much of their thinking, the relationship with India. And I think with that, you talk about Imran Khan being a populist, of course, next, you know, the Indian Modi is is, is sort of, he's right right in the populist playbook. Yeah. yeah. So you could be right. You could be right that as an opposition leader, he, he comes back. I wonder if he doesn't actually end up doing something very, very different in his life. A C- couple of quick things. One of the interesting things is that Shahbaz Sharif's great partner in driving food reform in the education Punjab was Michael Barber, who was the head of Tony Blair's delivery yeah. unit. Yeah. So actually, it was a real kind of Blair delivery unit culture that's behind this guy that's the new president. Well, you know what? Michael Barber, Michael Barber, most of our listeners probably don't know who Michael Barber is, but virtually everywhere you go in the world, when you're, particularly in the developing world, if you're sitting down with a minister or a president or a prime minister, quite often you will see Michael Barber's book on the back shelf, on the bookshelf behind. He's a great, what he did for our government was absolutely, absolutely outstanding. Yeah. And it was actually, it was a big, big problem when Cameron came in that he got rid of that delivery unit. And it suddenly turned out that it was very, very difficult to run the British government without it. Um, Another thing I think that's changing very quickly, and this is partly Russia-Ukraine, people were very hopeful that the way to find peace between India and Pakistan was really opening up trade. And of course, people are saying the same here in Jordan. There's been uh, expansion of trade between Jordan and Israel, sharing water, sharing energy. And of course, the old story behind that is when you have strong trading connections, it brings peace. You don't go to war. And that's another reason why Russia-Ukraine is so disturbing, because, mm. of course, those pipelines were built, trading yeah. connections were built, the fertilizer was flowing, the food was flowing. And nevertheless, we did go to war. And that makes us a bit more worried, I think, mm. about whether these attempts to bring peace in the Middle East or South Asia through trade are really, really add up to as much as we would have hoped a few years ago. Now, lots of people last week were said we were very, very, very downbeat. We were too downbeat last week. We had to sort of lift the mood a bit. By the way, just on Ukraine, I thought it was very interesting to see the first sort of, not fissure, that would be too strong, but Annalena Baerbock, the new German foreign minister, who's a green, um, really being quite frank in her disagreement with Schultz and yesterday calling very, very strongly and very, very clearly for the Germans to join in giving heavy weaponry to, uh, to Ukraine. Um, so it's it's <laughs> fascinating, isn't it? That the, German, yeah. the traditional German left... Yeah. I mean, Schultz was right out there, and now the Greens are outflanking him even more. Yeah. And now I think yeah. 70% of Europe in favour of Ukraine joining NATO, which would mean that we'd have to get involved in full military operations to defend mm. them. Mm. And I was struck, sorry, here's, here's me going to be, I mean, I really don't like Boris Johnson. I think I may actually dislike him even more than you do, which is really pushing it. But I was struck by, just in pure communications terms, how successful his trip to Ukraine was. That was real, that was good political communications. And I was also struck by the odd thing that I think we've discussed this in the past, that when you're in a war, it often suits people who are actors. And Boris Johnson is a sort of actor, a bit like Zelensky. He's a kind of, he was a sort of almost professional comedian. Mm. And you get a sense that what war brings out in political leaders is the ability to symbolize on social media in quite a simple way, an idea of your country. And it means it takes you out of the stuff that often these leaders are not very good at, the detailed business of governing, administration, running stuff, making difficult decisions about 
taxation or VAT. And what you saw there, I think, is a glimpse of, yeah, of what makes Boris so successful as a political leader, which is that he does have a bit of that charm. And although we really want to feel in this Ukrainian thing, and many of the people we follow on social media are making the contrast between Zelensky and Boris Johnson, but, and I say I don't like Boris Johnson, but I do think he's not a physical coward in any way at all. I think he's perfectly physically courageous guy. And I think in an odd way, this sort of war stuff might suit that style of leadership more than the normal civilian administration. Mm. I mean, I, I, I got into a bit of a, one of those ridiculous social media spats that one gets into occasionally, but with Ian Dale, who I've got a lot of time for Ian Dale. He's, 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 he's kind of on the right in politics, but I think he's a thinking right-wing person. And he said that, you know, I've been longing to be able to say that I'm proud of, proud of our prime minister and today I am. And Piers Morgan said something very, very similar. And I, I think it's perfectly possible to feel, as I did, that Johnson going to Kiev was the right thing to do. Uh, at the same time, think he's a truly terrible prime minister and that even though we've done well on the military, we've done very badly on the economic and on the humanitarian in relation to this. And also to think that a part of his motivation, I'm afraid, is to distract from all the other stuff. Um, so... I don't, and, and we're back to this thing about the way that our, our world works. That you know, the idea that one visit should change your view fundamentally about about somebody. And the other thing I'd say: look, Ursula von der Leyen went the day before, and um, you know, I think just sort of saw it as part of her job. I think it is part of their job to do these kind of things. And I, honestly, the idea that he'd be in physical danger. Yes, there's the chance of the Russians picking up where they might be, but one, they're not unlikely to wipe him out. Secondly. Um, I mean, they're pretty well protected, these guys, as they yeah, should be. Yeah, but I, I just, yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm, not, I'm not knocking uh, him. Yeah, it was the right yeah, thing yeah. to do, but I'm not buying this idea that as a result, we should all say, you know, bow down before. No, no, I, no, 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 nor me. Now, as usual, we've talked too much. We haven't covered all the questions. There's one I'd love to do when we come back next week, which is questions about ministers. But I think we're, we're kind of coming to the end and I can hear the call to prayer going here. Although, Rory, did you yeah. not see the person who said that <laughs> you and I might feel we talk too much, but there were quite a few complaints saying these podcasts should be at least two hours long. The, the full so, Macron. We should go for the full. We should the full, go for the full. Well, not, not just Macron, but, you know, Fidel Castro and Gaddafi. The, the lot of them. Yeah, yeah, that's One right. of my favourite ever AP stories, it was about the leader of, oh, was it, um, oh, it, was, it, was, it was one of the now changed African countries, but it basically there was a story that said the president yesterday addressed the parliament for 13 hours and 14 minutes. His speech will resume tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. beautiful. No, I, I, think, I think we should do a director's cut edition where we get to hear you, you know, giving the full four and a half hour speech. What I really think. Yeah, what exactly. I really think about exactly. the Tories. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Rory, I, I, there was one person who said, she is called Andre en Francaise. I love these Twitter names. Andre en Francaise said, I'm a big fan of your podcast, but if you ever play the bagpipes again, I will never listen again. Oh, then you should play them. I think this is your chance. This not, is only your big... am I, not only am I going to play them, I'm going to play. Can you, can you see this, Rory? Can you tell uh, all the listeners? It's the Ukrainian play? National Anthem. Oh, I my Lord. I have learnt the Ukrainian National Anthem wow. on the bagpipes. And I think, I think... And also, the other thing, Rory, we always... We seem every week to be recommending a book or two. Yep. I want to recommend this one to you. Do you speak French, by the way? 
Yeah, I speak French, yeah. Okay, well, Vladimir Fedorovsky, who used to work for um, Gorbachev, yep. has written a book in French. He's half Russian, half UK, and it's called Les Faces Cachées, The Hidden Faces, and it's absolutely fascinating. So Beautiful. Rec- okay, I've got a little little recommendation back, a slight, slightly more lowbrow, but if you're ever looking for something to watch in the evening, have you seen the new movie of Dune, the science fiction movie Dune? Oh, I'm not it really is, into, I'm not No, 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 I promise you, I'll give it a go. It is so beautifully shot, so right. beautifully conceived. The, the attempt to envisage a whole alien planet and civilization is completely mesmerizing. Okay. Give it a go. Okay, okay. all right. I, I, I will. I, I'll be, it'll be impossible to persuade Fiona to watch it because she's with me on science fiction. <laughs> because you've told me to, I will. Right, so I'm going to get my pipes. You, you, haven't, you haven't gone back to the pipes yet then? No, no, I'm, I'm too intimidated by you. You're, particularly since you attacked me on Twitter for bending my head in the wrong way and having my finger <laughs> position in the wrong way. <laughs> but I, I, listen, I was talking this morning, Finley McDonnell, who runs the National Piping Centre, and, and he tunes my pipes by FaceTime. <laughs> he tells me what to do. He tells me where the reeds are off, where, where I need to chew the, the, the drone stocks and so forth. And um, anyway, he saw the picture and he did say, I think they must teach the pipes very differently in public school. <laughs> your, your, right, your right hand fingers, they, they were too, <laughs> you were curling your fingers. You've got to cover the holes flat. I think I was, to be fair, I think I was 15 years old. Right? <laughs> just beginning. <laughs> okay. So while Alistair's just chewing on his drones and getting his fingering position right, that's uh, goodbye from all of us and see you next week. that sound that was absolutely amazing you really amazing that's that's um extraordinary isn't yeah. it incredible that it fits within the the single octave as well it, it's really extraordinary it yeah. tells you something about ancient indo-european links or something <laughs>